In the 2022-2023 school year, California launched an important program promising free school meals to all of its 6 million students. It's an achievement that's garnered regional and national attention because this program not only made California the first state to provide its students with free breakfast and lunch, a newsworthy feat in itself, but it's a story made for media headlines. After all, one relatable way to think about complex issues like systemic inequity is to talk about access to food. Because as we discussed in our last episode, everyone has a relationship to food. And because of that ubiquity, Food is this incredible organizing tool to get people to see not only their shared commonalities and shared humanity, but also the ways that our material conditions are preventing so many of us from accessing this most basic of human needs. So given this significance, it's no surprise that news outlets from the New York Times to public media have used adjectives like new and first to describe a program that is in many ways groundbreaking. But in the aftermath of any momentous policy, it's important to take a pause and examine the historical roots that help make big change possible. And for California's Universal School Meal Program, that includes highlighting the work of Black Californians who consistently shined a light on food inequity and scarcity in the state and spoke truth to power regarding who and what our body politic considers a priority. People said, hey, why are we wasting all this money sending people to the moon while our kids are, are hungry here? So in this episode, we're going to examine a group of young visionaries at the forefront of the 1970s Black Power Movement, whose free breakfast program in Oakland was an important precursor to eventual government-run school meal programs. In doing so, we'll discover how they didn't just help shape public imagination about the possibilities of food aid, they also helped change the political will of the state and nation. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the second episode in a three-part series examining the often undertold relationship between food justice and other political movements led by Black Californians. This series is a follow-up of sorts to our previous six-part series, We Are Not Strangers Here, which highlights hidden histories of African Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. Since that series aired in February and March of 2021, the We Are Not Strangers Here banner exhibit was finally cleared to launch after cultural institutions began reopening, and it's on tour now. So if you're interested in visiting or booking the exhibit or listening to the podcast series that accompanies it, check out www.agroots.org to learn more. In our last episode, we began examining the politics of food, or more specifically, how our connections to food often provide critical roadmaps to political and social change. It's a topic that's important for this series, as we think about the ways that generations of Black folks in the state have advocated relationships with food that center sustainability, communal exchange, and public relief. This focus means that while we're certainly paying attention to how African-Americans in California have faced and often continue to face food inequity in the Golden State, 
this series is just as interested in shining a light on the ways that Black folks in the state have used food either as the heart of a social movement or as one important tool for larger social action to shape notions and expectations of food justice in California. So in our first episode of the series, we dove into the history of World War II-era Los Angeles to examine the undertold story of the cooperative victory markets, which were part of a body of civil rights work that ended up altering the political makeup of the city and state. And in this episode, we're moving to the late 1960s and early 1970s to highlight the often unacknowledged African-American roots of free school meals in the state by turning our attention to the Black Panthers. Helping us think through our three stories in this series and the broader relationship between food justice and political activity is Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg, incoming associate professor of sociology at Cal State LA, who's also known to her students as Dr. Hope. She's a scholar, activist, and educator whose research situates food as central to freedom struggles and liberation movements. And though this focus examines some pretty large scale issues, Dr. Hope says her work is also personally relevant. I was born and raised in San Francisco. I grew up in inner cities. I took public transportation, went to public schools. We were on public assistance for a while. Life experiences which heightened the special kind of appreciation for food that made its way to her family's table. Food has always been a source of pride for our family that we had enough of it in the face of so many of the other people we were living near and living in community with that couldn't always feed themselves and and sustain themselves. So when Dr. Hope began researching the ways in which societies, cities, and neighborhoods are structured and how that structuring shapes how we experience the world, food became a central lens for her investigations. This research engages with multiple food concepts Dr. Hope began explaining in our last episode. Concepts like food security, or the idea that everyone should have access to enough food at all times, and food justice, which isn't just about securing enough food for folks, but making sure that communities are able to exercise their right to grow, sell, and eat healthy food that's ethically and sustainably produced. But in addition to those concepts, Dr. Hope also discusses systemic food inequity through the lens of food apartheid, a phrase that helps us think about the ways that neighborhoods are structured based on race and class and these governing identities that also impact the kind of food that you'll find in racialized neighborhoods, in poor neighborhoods. These conditions can lead to the creation of what some folks call food deserts, or areas that have limited access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food. But Dr. Hope cautions that this phrase, while buzzworthy, doesn't really tell the whole story about these complex food landscapes or the people that inhabit them. Food desert is a term that people really love to bring up in these conversations, but I think it does this work of diminishing the agency of communities at the same time. When you think of a desert, it's a a barren wasteland, right? There's nothing really of value there, no real life there. And so it sets us up for these external saviors to come in and create the conditions that will, you know, alleviate our food insecurity. According to Dr. Hope, it's a framing that gives many in food activism pause. 
So a lot of folks in the food justice world of activism and organizing and thought often refute food desert as a term because it does this work of making invisible the ways that people are actually thriving, right? The ways that just like in a, a real desert, there's a lot of life in the desert. You might not see it on the surface, but it's functioning in a way that that works for people. And so I think a lot of these misconceptions come from our tendency to paint folks as victims rather than agents and put them in a position where they're in need of being saved. And that's an important distinction, because while it's certainly valuable to highlight the existence and very real problem of unequal access to food and food pathways, Paying attention to the agency of individuals and communities also means recognizing how folks have actively, creatively, and often communally worked to negotiate inequitable food systems. Or as Dr. Hope reminds us about the central element of her research. I found very quickly that food was both this tool of oppression in neighborhoods like the ones that I've lived in and continue to live in, and also a tool of resistance. It was a tool of community empowerment and a reclamation of space and health. A reminder which brings us to the focus of this episode and the ways in which the Black Panther Party took it upon themselves to empower their communities in tackling large-scale social issues like hunger, work that was part of a comprehensive political philosophy and call to action that centered on the pride, empowerment, and creativity which defined the Black Power movement of the 1960s and 70s. Or as Dr. Hope reminds us, the Black Panthers in particular were very smart about using food as a tool to politicize community. Well, they were serving meals, but it wasn't just a meal for the sake of a meal. There was a meal, and then there was also some political education that accompanied that. In other words, this story provides us with another example of how food pathways can become a common site of political struggle, power, and change. To help us tell this story, we reached out to a past Black Panther who goes by a couple of names. My mother calls me Bill Jennings. When I joined the Black Panther Party, I got a nickname called Billy X because I used to quote Malcolm all the time. And now in the present day time, people know me as BJ. So it all depends on what period of time you knew me. Today, Billy X Jennings is a longtime archivist and historian of the Black Panther Party who works to preserve party history that often butts up against common misconceptions like... The Black Panther Party was a purely military operation. But the Black Panther Party hated all white people. There's a lot of myths about the party. And, uh, you know, it's part of my job to clear that up and show people where those ideas were incorrect. So as part of that work, Billy X. Jennings joined us by phone to help shine a light on a part of state history that's not often publicly commemorated. And as a heads up, we experienced some technical difficulties during the call, which made some portions of the beginning of Mr. X. Jennings' storytelling sound a little warped compared to later parts. Before Billy X. Jennings was a public historian or even a Black Panther, he was a teenager living in Coronado, California, a small city on a narrow peninsula of San Diego Bay. And though Coronado is now known as a swanky resort town on the water, 
When Billy X moved there with his family in January of 1968 for his father's military career, he was less than impressed with the small naval enclave. So much so, he couldn't wait to leave the military town, not just due to its small size, but... It was like all white. I mean, I graduated in a class of two blacks, me and another guy. Which, according to Mr. X Jennings, was a less than optimal situation for a black high school senior coming of age in an era of social change. Because, you know, being the only black person in class where major things are happening, I didn't know what you're talking about. So that inspired me to go study. But accessing black journalism and scholarship was more than a notion in 1968 Coronado. Back then, the two-mile concrete and steel bridge that now connects Coronado with downtown San Diego was still a year away from its completion. So if a teenage Billy X. Jennings wanted to get to the mainland to access reading materials... I had to catch the ferry every day and go to the San Diego Union. The Union was one of San Diego's oldest newspapers, and it offered an important service for many homesick soldiers and sailors stationed in and around the city through its reading room. They ship you down there from Oklahoma or somewhere. You want to see something from your local town. So the Union had a reading room with all these different newspapers from all over the country. There in the San Diego Union reading room, Billy X. Jennings encountered black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier or the Chicago Defender and new presses, too. They was giving me the new emerging black power images. So for six months, from January to June, Billy X. soaked up this new bold body of black power literature, all as the nation roiled in turmoil around him, from the interminable Vietnam War to the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy just months apart in 1968. And when he completed his senior year, he got his chance to leave Coronado and headed off to Laney College in Oakland. But upon me graduating from high school, my English teacher gave me a book as a present to read. And that book was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Billy X began reading the book everywhere he went, on the bus to Oakland, on campus at Laney College, And then one day, during his first semester of summer school, he was introduced to yet another pivotal influence in his young life. While I'm reading the book, I hear chants coming from the Alameda County Courthouse. The chants were, free Huey, free Huey. Uh, I got out of my criminology class at 11.50 and walked, followed the chant, and it was the opening day of Huey P. Newton's trial in 1968. The well-publicized trial attracted media attention from around the world. Supporters of Huey P. Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, argued Newton was wrongfully accused of shooting and killing an Oakland police officer. The case drew thousands of protesters to the Alameda County Courthouse, bringing together Black Panthers, community members, and a coalition of multiracial activist groups like the Oakland chapter of the Brown Berets, the Asian American Political Alliance, and the mainly white anti-war Peace and Freedom Party. After a series of legal procedures, including an initial conviction, in 1970, the California Court of Appeal eventually reversed Newton's conviction. But in July of 1968, the trial was just getting started, And so Billy X. Jennings, who just arrived in town as a new college freshman, joined the protests. And after that, things happened quickly for Billy. And by reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, 
at Meeting Panthers. Uh, the summer of 1968, I became a Panther in training. Being a Panther in training meant completing an organized six- to eight-week training process that included a comprehensive curriculum built around the party's revolutionary 10-point program. This primary set of guidelines called for 10 critical demands like educational opportunities, full employment, fair and decent housing, reparations, the immediate end to police brutality and the murder of Black people, and freedom and power for the Black community in order for Black folks to determine their own destiny. So getting a handle on the complex historical, political, and theoretical philosophies that grounded these demands first meant doing a lot of reading. The first thing the Black Panther Party did was to give you a book reading list of 35 books. Books that you had to make yourself familiar with, read, and know upon request a book review on each one of those books. You know, books by Che Guevara, books by Kruma, books by Fidel, uh, Chairman Mao Zedong, and other revolutionaries. And intellectual development wasn't the only key competency for future Panthers. And also at the same time, you had to obtain a weapon. You had to learn gun safety, target practice, and so forth. Finally, in addition to reading and self-defense, Panthers in training also learned how to conduct community outreach through a coordinated system of community placement. And also you was assigned to a geographical area in which you did your door-to-door community work because back in those days, there was no internet. The Black Panthers community work included all kinds of programming, from health clinics to assistance programs for senior citizens. And after Billy X became a full-fledged party member on September 8, 1968, he continued this community activism, including the Panthers' push to feed hungry children. Now, the breakfast program was based on the fact that many kids in Oakland was suffering from uh, lack of food. And this unequal access to food was a symptom of a larger issue. United government in 1968 established a poverty line, right? And the city of West Oakland was below the poverty line. A seemingly objective governmental rating that, in fact, illustrated a broader story of a place. Because 1968 Oakland, like many cities of the time, was impacted by various structural processes that scholars like geographer Nathan McClintock call an urban political ecology. Basically, this political ecology meant that by the time Billy X and his fellow Panthers were attempting to tackle hunger in Oakland, they were negotiating decades of political decisions that had literally shaped the infrastructure and economic landscape of the city, decisions dating as far back as the 19th century, when city boosters first promoted Oakland as a tranquil, quote, city of homes nestled across the bay from a bustling San Francisco. It's an important developmental history that makes sense to quickly unpack. First of all, Oakland sold itself as a haven for industry and settlement. And due to that marketing, the city experienced periods of rapid development in the 19th and 20th centuries. This settlement came in various waves, from the wooing of 19th century commuters and port and railroad industry workers, to the resettling of San Francisco residents after the 1906 earthquake, to the boon of World War I manufacturing, to New Deal federal projects that created ever-sprawling suburbs 
and to World War II's migratory influx of wartime workers, many of whom settled in FHA housing developments emblematic of the emerging suburban American dream. Another common thread of this development, however, was its racial exclusivity. In other words, often systemically precluded from these patterns of settlement were non-white residents of the city, including its growing Black population. These historical practices were common to the region in general. For example, according to historian Marilyn Johnson, of the 75,000 housing projects constructed in the Bay Area between 1949 and 1951, only 600 units were open to Black people. These exclusionary zoning practices, including redlining and neighborhood covenants, ensured that most of Oakland's Black residents were confined to the city's western sector, conditions that led to extreme overcrowding and housing precarity, especially as more African Americans settled in the area. For instance, between 1940 and 1960, in the midst of the Great Migration, Alameda County's Black population increased by nearly 600%, growing from a little over 12,000 to over 111,000 people. And housing wasn't the only concern for many of Oakland's Black residents. In the decades following World War II, Oakland's city center, like many urban areas, experienced various forms of deindustrialization as new factories shot up in more tax-rich suburbs like Fremont and San Leandro. In fact, just in the six years between 1960 and 1966 alone, Oakland's city center lost 10,000 manufacturing jobs. This industrial shift not only contributed to soaring unemployment, for example, in 1964, the unemployment rate for Oakland's Black residents was twice the city's already high rate of 11%. But in addition to its impact on employment, deindustrialization also transformed the city's urban landscape, remaking Oakland into a post-industrial city, where, as Nathan McClintock sums up, much of its environs were, quote, devalued, dilapidated, and scarred by pollution in ways that often discouraged future investment. So by 1968, when a young Billy X. Jennings first joined the Black Panther Party in Oakland, many folks were struggling on various levels, including grappling with food insecurity. It was an issue that also affected Oakland's youngest residents, or as Billy X. explains about the impacts of hunger. One of the ways that it manifests itself is through young kids going to school and falling out or fainting because of hunger. The Panthers understood the fundamental barrier food insecurity presented not only to children's physical health, but mental and educational well-being. We knew that as young people, it's hard to obtain knowledge or keep information or knowledge if you're constantly hungry because your mind is on other things like obtaining food. So they decided to act. The Black Panther Party took it upon themselves to start a breakfast program in the city of Oakland. And the purpose of this program was to feed and give a nutritional breakfast to young people in the community. And it's important to keep in mind that... The county didn't have any program for anything like this. Because at the time... There were no widespread free breakfast programs in schools across the country, just a few scattered programs in various rural areas. And nationwide free lunch didn't exist either, only a reduced price option for those most in need. So given this was a fairly new idea, the Panthers had to first just get the word out about what they were trying to do. What we did was to pass our flyers in the community. 
that people know that we are starting this breakfast program and that if they wanted some input into the program, we were having community meetings at St. Augustine Church, which was run by Father Neil. Father Neil later became our minister of religion of the Black Panther Party. Reverend Earl Albert Neal was a Black Episcopal priest who was an integral partner of the project, and his church, St. Augustine, soon became the program's community hub, where party leaders like co-founder Bobby Seale met with parents and community members in 1968 to discuss the possibilities of the breakfast program. And so people came together, they liked our deal. That included anything from consulting with nutritionists to build healthy menus, to having the local health department and fire marshal inspect the parish hall and church kitchen to make sure both met health and safety codes. Program leaders also launched all sorts of campaigns to secure food for the project, from eggs and bread to fresh fruit and meat. And they didn't just seek help from individual donors and small grocers. They also worked with local supermarkets, where, if need be, they deployed the threat of community boycott in exchange for donated goods. And finally, after months of preparation, collaboration, and negotiation, they were ready to launch. It was January 1969 that the first free breakfast program for school children kicked off in the city of Oakland at St. Augustine Church. The program began on a Monday, and Reverend Neal wrote a reflection of its launch, noting that at that very first breakfast, they fed 11 kids. However, on Friday, they served 135. And just like other Panther programming, this fast-growing free breakfast program was a highly organized affair. The breakfast program consisted of maybe four or five party members, right? You had to have a cook who's cooking up the food. You had to have a crosswalker to walk the kids across the street to the breakfast program. You had a receptionist, the first person you meet, right? And one of the things the kids were met with was a particular sense of agency in their dining experience, as they were offered a variety of fare from pancakes, oatmeal, and hot cocoa, to eggs, grits, toast, and milk. As the kids come in, we ask them what their name is, we put it on a, on a list, or we ask them what they want, what they like, and what they don't like, or what they're allergic to. So we won't serve them anything they don't want. So you have that, you have the server who bring, actually brings the food out to them, and then you have the walker again who walks them across the street so they can go back to school. It was a community project that didn't just make an impact locally. It went national within a week because at that time the Black Panther Party had 48 chapters and branches in 30 major cities in America. So Bobby Seale put the word out and said, hey, every office is mandated to start breakfast program. And it took off from there. So naturally, from New York to Chicago to New Orleans to Des Moines, Iowa to Seattle, these programs started popping up in the community. So within no time, we were feeding thousands of kids nationally. In fact, by 1971, the breakfast program existed in at least 36 cities across the country. And it didn't take long for the program to gain attention beyond the Black Panther Party. People saw what we were doing in different PTAs say, hey, that's a good idea. We should try that here in Toledo, Ohio. Or we should try that here in Memphis, Tennessee. That's a good idea. And the program didn't just have national appeal. Other organizations in other countries started feeding kids in their own community, empowering people in their own community. Because at that time, we had support groups in New Zealand, Australia, 
London, Israel, Africa. The project also went hand-in-hand with other food-related Panther programming. For instance, in Oakland, the Black Panthers distributed up to 6,000 free bags of groceries at a time to local communities. And it was community outreach with a social and political purpose. Because at the same time we're giving out the bags of groceries, we are testing people for sickle cell anemia, you know? At the same time, we're registering people to vote. In addition to using food as a tool to politicize community, The lightning rod nature of the free breakfast program also impacted federal policy towards feeding hungry children during a time when many communities were questioning the priorities of national spending because... At the same time as Black Panther Party is doing this, the United States government is launching uh, rockets to the moon. People said, hey, why are we wasting all this money sending people to the moon where our kids are, are hungry here or there's potholes in the street. So that drew a contradiction, right? A contradiction and sheer contrast to the description of danger so many in power consistently tried to cast upon the Black Panther Party. And so the group that the government was calling crooks and terrorists and and no good were feeding more kids than the government. Many more kids, over 20,000 in 1969 alone. In fact, According to Black Pass, quote, in a 1969 U.S. Senate hearing, the National School Lunch Program administrator admitted that the Panthers fed more poor school children than did the entire state of California. The government was embarrassed, so they had to start a breakfast program. That's how that breakfast program came about, because the Black Panther Party initiated An initiation with a lasting legacy because the Black Panthers free breakfast program not only highlighted the shortcomings and limited nature of federal school meal programs, it also helped shift political will when it came to providing hungry children with nutritious meals, attention and pressure that brought about real change. In 1973, Congress increased funding to its school lunch program, making a path for some children to receive free lunches, not just reduced price meals. Two years later, in 1975, the program was expanded to all public schools for children who financially qualified. You know, now there's no city in America that don't feed kids in the morning. Even if they don't know the the original program came from the Black Panther Party. But there's millions of American kids being fed every day because of what we did. Set that example. It wasn't because... Uh, The government wanted to do it. We embarrassed them into doing it. Despite this legacy, at the time, federal officials didn't publicly embrace the Panthers for these contributions to political change. Instead, the U.S. government vilified and systemically targeted the Panthers for this work, especially as the free breakfast program garnered support across various groups, from liberal whites to more moderate African Americans. Not only were the Black Panthers themselves labeled as, quote, the greatest threat to internal national security, but FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover also called the free breakfast program itself, quote, potentially the greatest threat to efforts by authorities to destroy what the Black Panther Party stands for. This assessment resulted in all sorts of coordinated attacks against the breakfast program on federal and local levels, ranging from attempting to sabotage donations and spreading rumors about tainted food to outright raids while children ate, where, at times, some terrified children were even photographed by police. 
And the night before the free breakfast program launched in a local church in Chicago, police broke into the church, not only crushing the food that was to be served the next day, they also urinated on it. By 1982, due to these pressures and other internal disputes, the Black Panther Party and their breakfast programs shuttered. These strategic attacks upon the party and its programming by the federal government are a significant part of history that deserve dedicated scrutiny and public reckoning. But it's also important to remember the legacy of the Black Panther Party, not only in their radical platform of community empowerment that led to the creation of other social programs from free school meals to what are now Black student unions on many college campuses, but also in the ways that the Panthers modeled various forms of solidarity. For instance, in San Francisco in 1977, when nearly 120 people with disabilities and their allies executed the longest sit-in to date at a federal building, a protest that laid the groundwork for what is now the Americans with Disabilities Act, it was the Black Panthers who provided the protesters with hot meals during the 25-day sit-in. And Professor Hope reminds us of another key example of this political solidarity that also intersected with food justice. Not a lot of folks know that the Black Panther Party and the United Farm Workers worked really closely together to support each other's efforts, each other's liberation efforts. And so when the United Farm Workers were striking based on the unfair and unlivable working conditions and incredibly low wages and toxic conditions of working in the fields, growing grapes during the Delano grape strike, the Black Panther Party was one of the biggest advocates of this effort. And they would organize Black communities to boycott the supermarkets that were still selling the kind of boycotted grapes. And they would organize buses to take shoppers from that supermarket to another supermarket that was supporting the strike, right? And so they were excellent at organizing community in service of, um, of, of shared goals. Shared goals that remind us of one of the Black Panthers' most powerful legacies. They really understood that when, when you get free, I get free. To see archival photos of the Black Panthers' free breakfast program, check out this story's page on our website at www.agroots.org. And for the third and final installment of this series, tune into our next episode, A Contemporary Harvest. That episode dives into contemporary times to examine how urban farming not only reconnects city residents to ancestral agricultural practices, but we'll see how one single mom in Oakland is mobilizing urban farming with youth for political and economic empowerment. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now some important acknowledgments. This podcast was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC San Diego and Calag Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. And it was edited by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. 
This three-episode project was made possible with support from the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg of Cal State LA and public historian Billy X. Jennings. We also offer thanks to geographer Nathan McClintock, who, among other work, examines the roots of urban agriculture in Oakland, the researchers of blackpast.org, and other scholars whose links you can find on our website. And thanks to activist farmer and author Leah Pinneman for her insightful words, which became the title of this episode, To Free Ourselves, We Must Feed Ourselves. These folks' detailed scholarship helped us tell this story.